0: And if you need a Bible, there are Bibles under your seat. I think it's on page 907. And if you came here this morning and you don't have a Bible, and you want to take one with you, that's our gift to you. You may take one of those Bibles. If you do not have a Bible and you're our guest this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning. I don't know how many of you here were born in Missouri or are from Missouri, but I was born in Missouri. And if you know anything about the state of Missouri, what's the famous nickname of the state of Missouri? It's called the, the Show Me State. It's on their license plate. It's kind of a slogan, the Show Me State. Now, a lot of people want to know, well, how did it get its name, the Show Me State? There's a lot of opinions about how it happened, but if you go back and read some of the legends, it was attributed to a Missouri congressman named Willard Vandiver. He served on the House of Representatives in the late 1800s, and in Philadelphia in 1899 at a naval banquet that he was attending, this other senator got up and began to talk and began to blow smoke and began to use some smooth talking and, and just kind of kept rambling on and on. And finally, this senator from Missouri, this congressman, William Vandiver, got up and said, listen. We're from a state that raises corn. We're from a state that raises cotton. Basically, we're farming people, and we're not impressed with your slick presentations. We're not expressed with your highfalutin, smooth talking. We're not impressed with all of that. And this is what he said. He said, I'm from Missouri. You've got to show me. You've got to show me. That's become a slogan for skeptics everywhere. You've got to show me. Maybe you're a person like that yourself. Where, like me, I'm from Missouri, and, and you've, got to, you've got to see it to believe it. You've got to give me the proof. You've got to show me. I'm not going to believe it until I've got proof. You've got to prove it to me. You've got to show me. And throughout history, this mentality has been around forever. There's a lot of famous people that have had this Missouri show me mentality. There have been a lot of skeptics throughout history. And some of these skeptics were outright atheists. Let me listen, let you listen to some of these statements by, by famous skeptics throughout history. This is what the French author Voltaire said. He said, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. Thomas Paine, he wrote The Age of Reason. During the Revolutionary War in our nation, the Age of Reason was actually a book meant to discredit Christianity and and to deconstruct the Bible. This is what he says, the Bible, a history of wickedness that has served to corrupt and brutalize mankind. How about Napoleon, the famous French emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte? This is what he said, he says, as for myself, I do not believe that such a person as Jesus Christ ever existed, but as the people are inclined to superstition, it's proper not to oppose them. Or, how about Thomas Edison, famous American inventor? He says this I have never seen the slightest scientific proof of the religious ideas of heaven and hell, of future life for individuals, or of a personal God. Or, Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, in Time magazine. Just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on Sunday morning. And then Jack Nicholson, famous actor and Lakers fan, said this, I resist all established beliefs. My religion basically is to be immediate, to live in the now. It's an old cliche, I know, but it's mine. History is filled with many thousands of people who've been skeptical We've had a hard time believing the claims of Christianity, have had a hard time believing that Jesus is is God in the flesh, have had a hard time believing in an empty tomb, in the resurrection. But today is Resurrection Sunday, and we as Christians gladly celebrate the empty tomb, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So on this Easter Sunday, whether you're a Missourian, you're a skeptic, or whether you've been a Christian for, for many, many years, or, or maybe you're just here this morning and you're not really sure why you're here, or you came today because Easter's kind of a good time to get dressed up and come to church. However you're here and why you're here, first of all, we're glad you're here. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. But on this Easter Sunday morning, I want to ask you a very, very important question. I want you to seriously consider this question. It's a very simple question. What is... Your greatest need this morning. What's your greatest need? Have you ever thought about that? What's your greatest need? Now, some of you your, your wheels are already starting to turn. You're like, well, my greatest need is, is happiness. My greatest need is to have a, uh, have a good family. My greatest need is to have no sickness and uh, no problems in my life. My greatest need is to get a new job. My greatest need is to quit my job. My greatest need is to find a person to marry. My greatest need is to have a wonderful life. But when you think about it, those are actually wants, not needs. When you strip everything away and you get down to the core of who you are as a person before God, every single one of us has to come face to face with our greatest need. Every single one of us in this room, we all, regardless of age, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, background, every single one of us in this room has one foundational, fundamental, deep-seated need this Easter Sunday. And it is this. What's the answer? To believe wholeheartedly in Jesus who died on the cross and rose again from the grave. That's your greatest need, to believe it wholeheartedly that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the grave. Now, why do I say it's your deepest need? Why do I say it's the most important need? Why do I say it's, it's all-encompassing? It's your greatest need this morning because, because your future hangs in the balance on how you answer this question. Your eternal destiny depends on how you answer this question. There's a real heaven, and there's a real hell, and depending on how you answer this question, your eternity hangs in the balance. So it's a deep need. It's a deep question. It's a fundamental question. Why did Jesus die on the cross and rise again? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's interesting in that passage of Scripture where Paul says this is the most important thing you can ever believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says you can believe in vain. You can actually have a a belief in vain where you don't really believe it. You don't wholeheartedly believe it. Now, all of us believe things, right? All of us have faith. For example, when I drive up to the ATM and I stick my debit card in the machine, I have faith it's going to give me money. Unless I'm overdrawn and don't have any money in there. When you go to a restaurant and you go sit down and eat, you have faith that the cooks aren't spitting in your food, and doing weird things to your food, and that when you come, and then the waiter or waitress comes and puts the, the plate down on your table, you have faith that what you're eating has been a good cooked meal. You, you have faith every time you go to a restaurant. Every time you go to a doctor and have a surgery, you have faith that when he finishes up, he doesn't leave the tools inside you when he sews you back up. Sometimes we tell our children, we have faith in you. We believe in you. You see, every single person believes in something you go across the world today everybody believes everybody has faith you have it every single day that's not the issue the issue is don't you have faith here's the question here's the fundamental question what kind of faith do you have and who's your faith in that's the most important question what kind of faith do you have and who is your faith in you see there's such a thing as saving faith There's such a type of faith that actually saves you. There's a type of faith that actually rescues you from God's justice. There's a type of faith that truly makes you a Christian. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a man named Thomas. What's his nickname? Doubting Thomas. I'm sure he had a bumper sticker on the back of his ox cart that said, Show me. He's from the Show Me state. Thomas was the first Missourian. On his mule cart, it probably said, you've got to show me. So before we get into our text this morning in John chapter 20, let me set the context. Jesus has died on the cross. They've buried him in a tomb. And then three days later, he's risen again. And on Easter Sunday morning, what we're celebrating today, he appears to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene goes back and tells the disciples and Peter and John run to the tomb and they find the empty tomb. And they're so excited and they're a little confused. And then that night, Sunday night, all the disciples are back in a room. And they're hiding because they're afraid. And Jesus shows up to them and says, peace be with you, I'm alive. But for some strange reason, Thomas is not there. Thomas is not there the first time Jesus shows up. And so the next time Jesus shows up, Thomas is there. So that's where we pick up in John chapter 20. Let's pick up in verse 24. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. And although although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. From this passage of Scripture, there are three absolutely crucial things we need to understand about saving faith that we see in the life of Doubting Thomas. Here's the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture. It is simply this. Stubborn skepticism blinds you from believing in Jesus. Stubborn skepticism. Now, we'll find out why it's called stubborn skepticism, but let's just ask a question. What do we know about Thomas before this event here when he's doubting? Thomas shows up two other times in the Gospel of John in important times. In John chapter 11, Thomas is there to witness Jesus raising Lazarus from the tomb. So Thomas has already seen a resurrection. He's already seen somebody raised from the dead. He'd already seen Jesus call a dead man out of the tomb that had been dead for three days. But on their way there... They knew that going there was going to be dangerous because it was a dangerous area where there was a lot of opposition. Listen to what Thomas says in John eleven fourteen through 16 Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him we really don't know what thomas means by this is thomas this courageous disciple that says hey we're ready to go die for jesus or is it this pessimism we're gonna go die we really don't know the attitude of thomas but what we see here is a man who witnessed a resurrection he witnessed jesus call a dead man out of the tomb lazarus thomas had seen it with his own eyes the second time we see Thomas is when Jesus gives them teaching about his going to heaven and coming back. And we have a famous passage of Scripture where Jesus gives these words to the, as, as the answer to Thomas's question in John 14, 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus speaking. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Great question. And what does Jesus answer? Jesus answered to him, I am the way, the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is Jesus' famous statement of him being the only way of salvation. So let's think about Thomas for a moment. On one occasion, he's seen a dead man raised from the tomb. On a second occasion, he's heard out of Jesus' own mouth, I'm going away and I'm coming back to prepare a place for you. So he knew that Jesus was going to die and rise again. So Thomas' issue is not lack of information. It's not that Thomas didn't have the facts. He knew what was happening. But look at verse 25. For some strange reason, Thomas was not there the first time. We don't know why Thomas was not there the first time that Jesus showed up. Maybe he was grief-stricken because Jesus had died, and the only way he knew how to to grieve was to go off and be alone. We really don't know. But for some strange reason, he wasn't there with the rest of the disciples. But on the second time, he is. And what did the disciples say to him? Thomas, you missed it. Jesus is alive. He conquered the tomb. We have seen Jesus. He's no longer on the cross. He's no longer in the tomb. He is alive. Jesus is alive, Thomas. And what does Thomas say? At the end of verse 25, I will never believe. You don't quite get the force of this in your English translations. In the original language, it's what's called a double negative. It could be translated like this. Thomas would say something like this. I will definitely never, no, not ever believe. I'm not going to believe it. I am never going to believe this until I see it with my own eyes. You've got to show me. This is a stubbornness in his heart. You see, he's unwilling to believe. It's not that he doesn't have the facts. It's not that he doesn't have the information. He wants it on his own terms. And it's not good enough to hear the testimony of the other disciples. It's not even good enough to see Jesus' scars. He has to actually touch it himself. He's not believing. He's stubborn in that unbelief. Now, many of you here today know the historical facts about Jesus. If I were to ask you and I were to give you a little Bible quiz and say, was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Yes. Did Jesus grow up in Nazareth? Yes. Did Jesus teach along the the countryside, casting out demons and doing miracles? Yes. Did Jesus die on a cross? Yes. Did Jesus rise again? Yes. A lot of people would say yes to those things. You believe the facts about that. I would go even further to say that, that a lot of people in our country believe in God But can I tell something that will shock you? Everything I've just told you, the demons believe that. Just knowing information is not enough to save you. James 2.19 You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Most people will say they believe in Jesus. Most people will say they believe in God. The demons believe in God. The demons believe in Jesus. That is not saving faith. Just saying you believe the facts. That's not saving faith. You see, it's not a matter of head information. It's a matter of a transformed heart. And Thomas is having a doubting heart. He's having a rebellious heart. He's having a stubborn heart. Do you realize there's a false type of faith that does not save you? Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. A false or untrue type of faith. And a lot of people are guilty of this. And maybe even you here this morning are guilty of this type of false faith. For example, one way to have false faith is when you say things like this. I must have absolute scientific proof for the existence of God until I believe in Jesus. I'm not going to believe in Jesus until I have scientific proof that God exists. Let me just say this. Does the Bible ever prove the existence of God? no actually what the bible does is the bible assumes god is already there he's sovereign the burden is upon us to prove he doesn't exist try to do that prove god doesn't exist so some people will say you know what i'm not going to believe unless i have scientific proof and their hearts are hard but if you do need proof for some strange reason of the resurrection you're doubting the resurrection let me give you some proof some great proof it's from the bible of the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians fifteen, five through 7 it says that Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Jesus appeared to more than 500 people, and there are 500 eyewitnesses. And as a matter of fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian that was not a Christian, had no dog in the fight, Actually, in his antiquities, stressed that Jesus did rise from the dead. So historically, in a a um, non-Christian, non-biblical source, there's attestation that Jesus rose from the dead. There's another false faith that says this. Another way you can have false faith says this. I believe that there are many paths to God and that Jesus is one of many good ways, but he's not the only absolute way to heaven. Let me... Share something with you before you think I'm a heretic. That's always a good thing to wake people up. <laughs> all paths lead to God. Every path that you're on is eventually going to lead you to God. Now, how you meet God when you get to the end of your life depends upon what you did in this life. But all paths lead to God. You're either going to find Him as your judge and be under His wrath, or you will find Him as your Savior because you trust in Christ. So no matter what path you're on, If you think you're never going to face God, all paths lead to God. And if you're not on the path of Christ, you're going to meet God as your judge. Now, what did Jesus say to Thomas earlier in John 14, 6? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts chapter 4, verse 10 through 12, Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. They had just healed a man. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. Another way to have false faith is when you say something like this. I'm okay with God, and I don't really believe all this stuff about hell, judgment, and sin. Stop talking about judgment. Stop talking about hell. Stop talking about sin. I don't want to hear it. I'm okay with God, and he's okay with me. Let's just play that out for a moment. If there's no hell, and there's no judgment, and you live however you want, and you believe there's no hell, and there's no judgment, and you live however you want, and you get to the end of your life, what have you got to lose? Nothing, because you don't believe in it. Well, let's say it's true, and it is true, that there is hell, and there is justice, and you live however you want, you have everything to lose. Here's what the Bible says in Romans 2, 5-6. through But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Romans chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Another way to have false faith is when you say something like this All I really need to do is make sure that I'm a good person, and then God will let me into heaven based upon how good I live my life. A lot of people believe that. Let's say, for example, that we wanted to um, get to this tropical island that was 50 miles off the coast of California. And so, 50 miles off the coast of California, there's this island that's lush, it's perfect, it's awesome, there's this great resort, it's got everything your heart would desire. And the only way to get to this island, you can't helicopter in, the boat's down, the only way you can get to the island is to, is to build a bridge, Well, you build a bridge, but you run out of material, and you only get it to go about 20 feet into the ocean. So you're not even halfway there. And all of us get this great idea. You know what? We're pretty good people. We're pretty good people. We can try really hard. As a matter of fact, here's what we're going to do. We're going to all line up, and we're going to run as fast as we can, and we're going to try to jump to the island. Okay, so Tarina gets up there, and she starts running, and she probably gets about five feet, and then belly flops. Okay, Brent, he's a little taller. Brent starts running, and he gets in. He goes, maybe he goes seven feet, and he belly flops. Okay, we've got a long jumper in the room here, or somebody that's good at diving, and they run as hard as they can, and maybe they get about 15 feet, and they belly flop. Of course, when I get out there, I may, who knows what I may do. I may just, like, trip before I even get to the edge. (laughs) The problem is none of us are going to make it, are we? All of us are going to come short because we don't have the power in ourselves to get there. That's what the Bible says about sin. All of us fall short of getting there. None of us can do enough good to get there. As a matter of fact, this is what the Bible says. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. You fall short. You don't make it. Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe... In Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's another way to have false faith when you say something like this. And a lot of people say this. God exists to make me happy, and I will come to Jesus if he promises to give me great health and wealth. You do not need a cosmic therapist. You need your sins forgiven. Other people may say things like this. Another way to say that you have false faith. I'm only coming to church because I have friends here and it seems like a place for me and my family to have social interaction. That's the only reason I come to church is because it's my social life. I have friends here, there's social interaction, but, but I don't really care about having a relationship with God. I just come here because I find friends. Or here's another way to have false faith. I'm only interested in Jesus because I feel really guilty And coming to church helps me cope with the pressures of life and look good to others. Makes me look good to others. The only reason I'm coming to church is because I look good to others. I don't really care about having a relationship with God. I just don't want to look bad in front of others. Or maybe some children say this. Or young adults. Or Actually, let's get to that in just a minute. Another way to have false faith is this. I don't really care about repenting of my sin and surrendering to Jesus. I just want in on all the supernatural excitement and sensationalism that Jesus promises. I'm not into organized religion. I just want all the cool stuff that I hear about Christianity. The only reason I'm into Jesus is because I feel pressured by my family and don't want to let them down. Is another reason that people give. Now, one of these types of false faith might define you this morning. You may find yourself believing some of this false faith. And you may not even be conscious that you believe that. You may not even know that you believe that because you're blinded to that and you're just kind of coasting through life and you're living a good life and everything's okay with you and as long as I believe in God, everything's fine and you're blinded to that. But do you realize that it's a hard issue, that you're stubborn in your unbelief? So what does it truly mean to believe in Jesus? Well, let's look at our second issue. Saving faith means you trust Jesus as both your Lord and your God. Saving faith means you trust Jesus as both your Lord and your God. Now, after a week, Jesus shows up. And Jesus says, Peace be with you. And Jesus goes to Thomas and says, Thomas, listen, put your fingers, put your hands in my side. Put your hands in the wounds. Look for yourself. But notice something very interesting that Jesus says to Thomas. In verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it at my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Literally, Jesus is saying there, stop being an unbeliever, Thomas, and start becoming a believer. And that's shocking when you think about who he's talking to. Who's he talking to? Thomas. Wasn't Thomas one of the 12 disciples? Hadn't Thomas spent three years with Jesus? Hadn't Thomas seen Lazarus rise from the dead? Hadn't Thomas seen Jesus perform miracles? Had not Thomas had enough information for three years of who Jesus was, but Jesus looks Thomas in the eye and says, you're an unbeliever, start believing. Here's the point. Up to that point in Thomas' life, he was not a Christian. He had the facts about who Jesus was. He had the information about who Jesus was, but he had not personally placed his faith in Jesus. So verse 28 shows us that step where, G- where Thomas moves from being an unbeliever to a believer, where he's, he crosses the line from being an un- a non-Christian to a Christian. We see this in his confession. What does he say there in verse 28? Thomas sa- answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas confesses two things that are absolutely crucial for you to understand who Jesus is. That he's Lord and that he's God. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? It means that he's sovereign, he's ruler, he has the right to lead your life, he has the the right to set the agenda for your life. It means that you must repent of your sin, that you must surrender to him, that you must submit to him, that you stop living for yourself and stop living selfishly and stop wallowing in your sin and you submit to Jesus to be the leader, the king, the sovereign, the, the highest person in your life that you submit to. That's what it means that Jesus is your Lord. You surrender to him. But notice what Thomas says there. And this is very, very important. What does Thomas say? My Lord. My Lord. Makes it very, very personal. He doesn't just say the Lord. He says my Lord. And that's what every single person here must come to grips with. You must come to that point in your life where you personally say Jesus is my Lord. My Lord. Romans chapter 10 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My Lord. But then he says, Jesus is my Lord and my God. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is my God? This is very, very important. It means that Jesus is God. He's not just a guru. He's not just a a good teacher. It doesn't mean he's just a moral guy that walked around and healed. It means that Jesus is literally God in the flesh. It means that Jesus is absolutely divine. It means that Jesus has always existed in eternity past. It means that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he is absolutely God, that he is sovereign. He's my Lord and my God. And Notice again, Thomas says, my God. It's personal. So every single person in this room has to come to that point in their life where you bow before Jesus and you say, Jesus, you're my Lord and you're my God. And I'm trusting in that. And I'm putting my faith in you. Do you believe that? Down in verse 31 John tells us what else Jesus has done. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Lord. He's the Messiah. That he's the Son of God. Another title for Jesus being being the fact that he's the, the title, the Son of God. He's got the highest place. So saving faith means you trust and believe in Jesus who he says he is. Here's how faith works. Here's how faith works. If you want to know how faith works as a Christian, here's how it works. Number one, it starts with knowledge. You have to have knowledge of who Jesus is. You have to have knowledge of what he's done. You have to have knowledge of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You have to have knowledge. But is that enough? No, because the demons have knowledge. The second thing that you've got to have is you've got to have conviction where you are convinced in your heart and in your mind that this is true not only out there, but it's true for you, that you're a sinner and you need Jesus and you're convinced that if I don't trust him right now, I'm going to spend eternity separated from him and I am toast and so I need to trust him. But that's not enough. The third thing you need to do is actually trust. Place all of your faith in Jesus. Now, I've given this this illustration many, many times, so pardon me if you've heard it before, but but there's so many new people here, maybe you've never heard this illustration before of what saving faith truly is. All of us are at a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet in an airplane. And the flight attendant comes on and says, Listen, the captain has told us we're about to crash land. Now, you have two options. You can crash land and die, or we're going to issue everybody a parachute, and you're going to have to jump. Uh, stewardess, I'm afraid of heights. I don't care. You're going to jump. So she comes and she gives everybody a parachute. And some of you take the parachute and you look at the parachute and you observe the parachute and you admire the parachute and you may even hug the parachute. It's a pretty parachute. I believe this parachute can save me. I believe this parachute is well manufactured. I I, I like this parachute. Is that going to save you? No. What's going to save you? You've got to actually put the parachute on, and when you step towards the edge of that door, you've got to jump for dear life, trusting in everything that that parachute's going to support you when you plummet to your death. Jesus is a lot more glorious than a parachute, but here's the parallel. You can admire Jesus. You can look at Jesus. You can believe he exists. You you can know all the facts about Jesus. You can even like, like Jesus and maybe even get close to Jesus, but that's not saving faith. Saving faith means that you take Jesus on, you trust him for everything, and you totally surrender your life to him to save you from your sins. What's the third thing we need to know this morning? Saving faith grants you the blessing of eternal life with Jesus. Anybody here physically see Jesus rise from the grave? Anybody here touch the nail scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side? Anybody here see that? Now, at first glance, it may seem like we're at the disadvantage because we weren't there to physically see it like Thomas. We weren't there like the apostles, like those 500 witnesses. We weren't there to physically see Jesus rise from the dead and walk upon the earth. So we must have a disadvantage, right? Listen to what Jesus says there in verse 31. I mean, I'm sorry, in, in verse 29. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen me and yet have believed. Who does that talk about? Us. Us. We've not seen Jesus, what we believe. He said, it's a blessing. And what's the greatest blessing that he gives? Look at verse 31. It's the greatest blessing. But these things are written so that you may believe, and we've already talked about what that means and what it doesn't mean, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, what do you get? You may have life in his name. And that life is not just a a great life here, but it means eternal life with Christ forever, to live forever with Jesus eternally. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If there's no resurrection from the grave, if Jesus didn't spring out of that tomb, then our faith is useless and we're still in our sins. But praise be to God, he rose again, he's alive, and Jesus stands ready and willing and able to save anybody who will call upon him. But here's what you must do this morning. You can't just sit under the voice of my preaching and walk out of here and not be affected and not be changed because if you do, you're like Thomas and have a stubborn, unbelieving heart. You've heard it, you've got the information. What you've got to do is stop having that stubborn, unbelieving heart and start believing that Jesus is who he says he is and get to that point where you say, He's my Lord and he's my God. And I give my life to Christ this morning fully. Don't just believe the facts. The demons believe the facts. Take the next step and place all of your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and your God. Your greatest need is to wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believe, trust that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again from the grave. And what better time than Easter 2015 than to make it a reality? As a matter of fact, let's make this real this morning. On the bottom of your communication card, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make this real. If this is something that's touched you this morning, on the back of that communication card, it says, my next step today is... My next step today, I'm giving you a step to walk out of here with. One of those things may be, my next step today is to repent and believe in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. If you've never done that, maybe today is the day where the Holy Spirit's opening your heart to that. Or maybe you want to check off to make an appointment with Pastor Sean to discuss my spiritual condition. Maybe you have a lot more questions and you want to come make an appointment and talk to me. Or number three, talk to Sean about baptism. Maybe you're here and you haven't been baptized. Or maybe just to go home. And seriously think about what I hear today. Or maybe you want on the other side more information about children's ministry or youth ministry or adult Bible studies or discovering a manual class or about baptism. But I'd really encourage you, if you have been impacted by the message this morning and you feel led to fill this out, just fill this out. Drop it in the information box on the way out. And I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to follow up with you. I'd love to to just know. Nobody else is going to know except for me. And I would just love to kind of maybe follow up and see how we can help you spiritually. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Have you come to that point in your life, like Thomas, where you're no longer stubborn in your rebellion, in your unbelief, you're no longer skeptical, you're no longer a Missourian, but you've come to that point personally where you've said to Jesus, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God, and I trust in you fully for salvation. Would you spend some time in prayer this morning? I thank you that we have this account in the Bible of a man that, that went from being stubborn and rebellious and unbelieving to, to Lord, you confronted him with that and he, he melted in your presence and he confessed you as a Savior and his Lord. And would that we all be Thomases in this room, that we would all confess, Jesus, you're my Lord and you're my God. And the reason I believe this is because there is an empty tomb but you rose again to save me from my sins and to purchase a place for me in heaven. Lord, I pray for those this morning that may have never done that, that today would be their day of salvation, that they would seriously ponder the truth of the scripture, that they would repent and believe in Jesus. Or maybe they would set up an appointment to talk to me, with me, whatever it would be, Lord. Would you reach down and grab a hold of hearts this morning? on this Easter Sunday, that we might be changed forever and have the assurance that we've got eternal life when we die. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.